Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today I have David Bray, a faculty member at Singularity University. Uh, David's into, uh, besides faculty member, he has a bunch of other initiatives he's going to talk about. And I always preface these calls uh, with appreciation because every single person I've talked to from Singularity University is a, a polymath. They're into all kinds of great stuff. So I'm looking forward to talking to you, David. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Richard. And uh, you set a high bar, so I, hopefully I can rise to the occasion. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, so tell guests, um, what, let's start with your work at Singularity, and then tell me about the other initiatives that you're working on on your own. Sure. Uh, so uh, at Singularity University, I guess I first got involved in 2014 with uh, uh, Daniel Kraft for his exponential medicine effort. And that was really thinking about how the exponential pace of changes in technology, both in terms of digital technologies, also biotechnologies, was going to impact healthcare. And uh, what I really liked was that Daniel and Singularity University had the vision that it's not just about the technology. In fact, technology is really only 10% or 20% of what's driving the change. What really is interesting is how we can actually come together as people, as individuals, as societies, and rethink how things. In this case, it was medicine. Uh, since then, however, I, I've, I've been in a multiple of different topics. Uh, my own background ranges from everything from bioterrorism, preparedness, and response. I used to be involved with the Centers for Disease Control back in the early 2000 period. Uh, actually was supposed to brief the CIA and the FBI at 9 o'clock in the morning as to what we would do technology-wise if a bad day ever happened. Uh, unfortunately, of course, 8.34 a.m. that morning of September 11th, the world changed, and so we busy we were busy responding to that. The briefing got postponed. Uh, and background including bioterrorism preparedness, also being in just turbulent environments. Uh, I actually volunteered to go to Afghanistan, travel on Secretary of Defense travel orders in 2009, basically to spend about uh, four months thinking differently about both military and humanitarian efforts on the ground there. Uh, later, uh, served in different public service capacities, both in the intelligence community and the Federal Communications Commission, usually going into situations where it looked like it was a technology or a tactical issue or a challenge, when in fact, uh, all evidence, when you dive deep enough under the surface, it was often just a challenge of how do you get people to work together, speak the same narrative, come together. And for me, that's my own personal excitement, because in addition to Singularity University, I also served as an executive director at a group called People-Centered Internet, which is a coalition that Vint Cerf, uh, co-creator of the Internet, founded 
really to try and do demonstration projects that measurably improve people's lives using the Internet. Well, let's talk about the uh, the counterterrorism and disaster preparedness work. Um, can you give me a few examples of where, like you said, you know, you thought it was a technical or logistics or some other kind of problem, but the core problem was perhaps communication or something else. You know, any examples you can give? Sure. Uh, well, so in the United States, uh, uh, when the Constitution was written, nobody ever thought of this thing called public health, let alone bioterrorism preparedness. And so because the Constitution doesn't say who gets to oversee it, by default, it is a state right. And so we, we often said, you know, when you've seen one state health facility or state health uh, laboratory, you've only seen one because they each have different ones. Um, and so the challenge is, is that when you're trying to deal with infectious diseases or, you know, whether they be human-made or natural-made, these things don't stop at geographical borders. They transcend it. And so when you're looking at how do you how do you know if something bad is happening even if it's even if it's just the the increase in the flu season but it could also be that someone is intentionally trying to release something into the air into the water supply you're really having to look at all uh, a whole large number of data sources that span different localities and states and what i actually appreciate about the us system actually is at the federal level it's not about the individual in fact we would not really know specifically it was patient X and this was their name and the other things about it. It really is more the signs and symptoms and the information that actually tells you we're seeing an increase of rash with fever or something like that. And that then if we start seeing it increase across the nation or having certain trends gives us the ability to then talk to the states and say, you may want to pay specific attention here or if you want our assistance, we can help you. That, to me, is, is very much a people and a communications issue than it is a technology issue. Now, we're seeing very interesting advances and trends in terms of the ability for technology to help us rapidly understand the genetic makeup, the protein makeup of these certain, whether they be viruses or bacteria, and that, to me, is exciting because once you can characterize it, you can actually say, well, this is similar to something we saw over here or it's something different. Um, and I'll give you one last example. Back in 2003, when the severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, came out. Um, of course, we weren't first calling it that. Initially, we were calling it atypical febrile illness. But we actually knew about it probably about five months in advance before the Chinese government finally came forward and said it's been going on. And part of the reasons why we knew about it was actually the sale of, sale of the price of garlic um, was going up and increasing in price. And actually, garlic is seen as a cure-all in certain regions. And so if you understand that garlic is something that is used as a cure-all, if something odd is going on, and if you see the price start to go up, so obviously you know, there's huge demand, that can tip in cue and say maybe something odd is going on here and you need to pay attention to it. But if you didn't have that context, you might not be able to actually see and actually spot those trends relating to public health. That's really interesting. Huh. What is what's the goal of public health? Maybe it sounds obvious. You're you're absolutely right to go back to first principles. I'm one of those people that always likes to say, "Why are we here? Why are we doing it?" I think the goal of public health is to recognize that, that infectious diseases don't stop at borders. Infectious diseases don't stop at neighborhoods or demographics. That as a increasingly connected planet, what what happens in the healthy health of an environment half a world away? can impact the health of your community in a matter of days, if not hours. But again, so when there's a when there's an outbreak, how does the federal government, for instance, look at it? You right. Know, when there's a, um, you know, so they this concept called public health, what does that mean? Just minimize the number of casualties, um, irregardless of what each 
what a given individual has to go through or not? You know, what are the general policies that shape reactions? Right. So it really is dependent upon um, the the local level and the state level. In some respects, that's the value of the U.S. system is it is local and, and state based. Uh, what the what the national the federal level of the United States government is taking a look at is uh, really sort of interesting is trying to spot emerging infectious diseases, um, trying to spot are, is there an increase in mortality uh, or morbidity associated with uh, the flu season. Like, for example, this year's flu season, it does look like um, it's of a variant. It includes a variant that's called H3. Um, that, 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 that variant is basically going to be more virulent in the sense that it's going to lead to more hospitalization of senior citizens and possibly more deaths as well. And so that's, that, that's something that only becomes available when you step up above the local level and go up to the national level. And when you look at the national level, you can spot these trends, and then you can sort of circle back to the local level because at the end of the day, all public health is local. I mean, it's, it's, it's knowing the community and knowing what's important and say, may not have hit you yet, but we're starting to see a really bad flu season. You might want to encourage people to get additional immunizations, get additional vaccinations, and actually encourage people to take preventative measures. Do people have any um, misconceptions about how governments uh, you know, <laughs> handle disasters? Do you think that, you know, that it, I don't know, do you run into any conspiracy theories? Remember, in the United States, we fought a war against the king. So, you know, we, we have a natural distrust of any, any authority figure because it's, it's in our roots that we, we had a revolution. Um, so, yeah, there are plenty of, uh, of either conspiracy theories or just, you know, misunderstandings. One is the Centers for Disease Control does not show up first on the scene in like some magical helicopter or something like that in the middle of an outbreak. I mean, we have to usually be invited by the governor or be invited by the head of their state public health facility before we can show up. And so, again, that's where I often say, unless it's happening at a federal building, um, all response to public health or outbreaks is local. You know, what we're really out there to try and do is really think about, you know, how can you how can you empower the local level to do what's right for them? Um, there are certain diseases that show up locally in, say, the southwest or the northeast. And so when those things occur, it's not something abnormal. It's when one of those diseases shows up in another part of the United States that doesn't normally show up there. That's when it is abnormal. And that's when you need to possibly have a response. Were you in this position when the Ebola outbreak happened a few years ago? Um, no, I was 2000 to 2005, so I got to see the anthrax events of 2001, which was interesting. Oh. Uh, and then later, can you comment on that at all? What was that like to be um, working in this area? So, so uh, October 3rd of 2001 uh, is when I flew up to Virginia and actually ended up giving the briefing to the FBI and the CIA that I was supposed to give back on September 11th as to what we would do technology-wise. Uh, with what was called the Laboratory Response Network. And the Laboratory Response Network is a collection of state public health facilities, local public health facilities, also some agricultural labs and Department of Defense labs. And the idea is, let's say you get a suspicious letter or you get a suspicious package. Um, and you you don't know if it, it claims it's anthrax, but you don't know if it's anthrax or not. Well, this is a place where the appropriate public health officials can take that sample to the nearest lab, regardless of which state it's in, regardless of whether it's a federal lab or a local lab or a state lab. And there is a series of standardized protocols to do the testing, because it's not like you just do one test and you magically know if it's anthrax or not. You actually have to do a series of tests, and then that will actually allow you to get to what's called a presumptive positive, that this appears to be it, and then you can get a confirmatory positive or a confirmatory negative. 
And so when the anthrax events happened, Ooh. of course, there was a huge surge in the amount of testing that wanted to get done. Um, now, my own role was trying to handle the technology, uh, especially the information technology associated with this. And we had been pushing, we'd been pushing for about a year um, for, if you remember, there was a thing called the Agile Manifesto that came out in March of 2001, which talked about instead of doing monolithic, massive projects that take three to four years to deliver, you should do very rapid sprints as sort of rapid iterative development that gets a minimal viable product out and then you improve it. And I was pushing yeah, to the, the, lean, the lean manifesto or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, lean in some respects is actually more than 15 years old. Exactly. But I was being told by the, the powers that be that, you know, not in my group, but the larger enterprise. Again, we were only about 40 people in a 15,000 person organization. I was being told, get back in your box, follow the three to four year plan. You know, what, what are you doing bringing this new methodology? We don't know what it is. And I said, you know, <laughs> we can't wait. We don't have a deal with the terrorists not to get, you know, not to have anything happen until we get something online. We've got to have a minimal viable product. And so fortunately, um, we had sort of, even though I was a bit of a heretic and I was introducing friction, we had started to sort of move forward in that. And then, of course, when 9-11 happened, we, we didn't sleep at all. And we moved even further so that when the anthrax events happened, we actually did have a web-based way. And it was, in some respects, it was fairly primitive. It was people going to computers because... These public health labs didn't actually have internet connectivity at the time. They'd have to go to the computers in a library next door to upload the information, but at least we could handle it electronically because we That's saw great. more than 300,000 tests uh, for anthrax in a very short period of time. That's crazy that, yeah, I guess 2001 internet connectivity wasn't very good. That's amazing. No, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a very interesting time, and uh, it also just showed to me that the takeaway I had was two things. One that in any circumstance, people generally mean well, but they don't see beyond their immediate context. They, they only see what's next to them. And so the people that were telling me to get back in my box and follow the five-year plan, they just were not able to be at that edge perspective and see the challenges we were facing, which was, look, you know, if something happened tomorrow, we've got to have something that works, even if it's not the end-all, be-all, but at least it's working as a minimal product. Two, however, it also taught me, you know, in some respects, when people bash government for not being fast to respond or not being able to keep up with the times, you have to go back to the Federalist Papers, at least in the United States, where James Madison wrote in 1788, he said uh, he wanted ambition to counter ambition. He said, what is government but the greatest reflection of humanity? If all men and women were angels, no government would be necessary. And what does he mean by that? Well, again, we had fought a war against the king. He wanted turf wars as a way of preventing any one person from having too much power in government. And I think that works until you get to the exponential era we're facing now, where the rate of change is far faster than it was in any time in human history. And the very institutions we have that are slow, deliberative, and meant to actually have checks and balances to preserve our freedoms and liberties can't move at the speed necessary to keep up with the changing world. Now, I don't want the solution of remove all checks and balances and become an autocracy, because that would be awful. But I think we as a public need to stop bashing government for being slow and instead have the empathy to say, wait, wait, we designed it to be this certain way as being checks and balances. We still want those checks and balances, but can we find a way to have it be more nimble to the changing world and do what we want it to do, but also be able to preserve our liberties and freedoms? Well, people... I know. I mean, believe me, I know. They've vilified government. They hate it. They fear it. But what about government? 
you think government feels like, oh, the people hate us and we don't want to talk to them and other misconceptions on the other side? You know, we know what we're doing. Leave us alone. Right. Uh, I think if you, I mean, I think if you talk to people on the inside that are really in it for the right reasons, and I would say, you know, any organization, I think it was Ford Motor Company back in the, the beginning of the 20th century that, that, that studied and found that 20% of their employees did 80% of the valuable work. I think the same thing is true, you know, in any organization. One, they understand that when people are upset or frustrated, it's not about them personally. It is about the services being delivered or the inefficiency in which they're being done. And, and, and some of that is very, very real, and some of that is unfortunately miscommunication or misperception. Um, I do think that's part of the value of doing things locally, because at a local level, it's easier to respond much easier to respond to local level than it is to respond to the desires of 320 million people because, you know, someone's going to be upset out of 320 million people. Yeah, but, that's true. But what, what we're missing is there hasn't been a conversation space. In some respects, it, our elected leaders don't have the incentive to have this conversation because it's not going to be fixed in four years or two years if you're a representative, not even six years if you're a senator. It, it's, it's, it's a hard, long-term solution that no elected leader is probably going to see done in their time window. So they don't address it, and it's easier for them to bash the government employees as being stupid because that gets some votes. The public, you know, I mean, we've all got day jobs, so are we going to actually dive into how do we rework how public service is delivered? Again, we're, we're busy doing our lives, and so where is that space to rethink how we do the business of a representative society for the 21st century? That's partly why I'm a faculty member at Singularity. Yeah, it'd be nice locally if there was a thing called Government Day, like local Government Day, and um, you know there was a a polling of people. You know, what do you see as a problem? What's good? What's bad? And maybe yep. let them know about the issues. You know, maybe once a quarter. It might not right. be too much. And I've seen other countries. Australia, for example, is experimenting with a interesting model. I was there in 2015. So let's say you have some issue involving water management or land rights, and you're at an impasse. Uh, what they'll actually do is they will have members of the community pick, you know, pick 12 representatives and say, here are the constraints. Okay, you've got two weeks, almost like jurors, come up with a solution. And, and, and they'll actually let them, you know, in some respects, it helps them deliberate amongst themselves the very issues that those in public service are facing. And yes, they may initially come in with their opinion that this is the way to solve it. But then when they start examining it and like, they see the trade-offs, they realize that it's not as simple or as one-sided or a 30-second soundbite as they previously thought. Makes sense. All right, let's let's go into uh, your work on the uh, the internet side. The work with Vince Cerf. You know, what's yeah. that about? And just give me a sketch. Sure. So, uh, I, I started getting involved with the People Centered Internet about three years ago, and then officially joined uh, back in October of 2017 as their executive director. You know, the internet. This is a very interesting story of how it came about. I mean, initially, as we all know, it was initially there to provide resiliency for Department of Defense communications in the event of a really bad day, nuclear day. Uh, and then later it started to be used by academics, and then it got rolled out to the commercial sector, and now it's, you know, it's, it's almost every fabric of our lives in some respects. Douglas Engelbart, who was one of the pioneers, along with Vint and others, with the Internet and with computer technologies, um, Douglas Engelbart, he gave the mother all demos, he invented the mouse, um, was a strong believer that technology could help bring communities together and help them collectively figure out what they wanted to do together. And that, that was his envision for digital technologies. 
And if you remember the 1990s, I mean, there was a sense of hope and optimism with the Internet that this was going to allow us to be more free, be more creative, allow us to sort of share knowledge, things like that. It would bring us together as a people. I would submit now, maybe more than 25 years later, that sense of optimism is not so much present. In fact, a lot of people are beginning to wonder, is this now you know, going to impact my reputation, my, my credit score? Is this people making advantage of the data they can get off me on the Internet? We've lost that. And instead of sitting there and saying this is wrong or this is bad or this is not right or it's profits are only going to corporations or whatever, we figured, can we show a way forward? And so the three projects we're working on, first and foremost, Vince, Vince Cerf and I and other members of the People's Internet uh, effort believe that Native Americans uh, have been neglected and need to be involved in getting Internet to their communities. And so we want to work with them where, we, where there are tribes that are willing. We want to work with them in the United States and also recognize that it's not just a matter of just physically getting them Internet connectivity. It's about making sure they have a locus of choice and decisions. They can choose when and where it's brought into their community, how it's used. Is it used for education first? Is it used for jobs? Because, you know, they, 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 they one, they're essentially sovereign nations, and two, they need to make sure they actually are empowered to decide in a way that does it that respects their cultural beliefs. The other two projects that we're working on, one is uh, with the wildfires that happened in California, more than 5,500 homes, I think now it's up to 7,000 homes, have lost identity documents, whether it be social security numbers, birth certificates. And so we're trying to work with local governments to try and find a faster way, because apparently in the past it takes four to five years to restore these documents, and even wow. worse to your home address, which doesn't help anybody if your house burnt down. Um, we're trying to reduce it to being four to five months or less and do it in a way that gets you the documentation, but also at the same time prevents an increase in fraud. Because obviously if you shorten the time frame, you might also shorten the checks and it might end up that you give identity documents to people that really aren't who they say they are. Uh, and right. so we wanna be respectful of that and working with local communities on that. The third, this effort has not been funded yet, uh, but we are hoping we can in the next month or two um, try and find some funders. In Puerto Rico, obviously, they're still recovering from the uh, hurricane that hit. Power is still an issue. Communications is an issue. There, there have been some nascent efforts to try and restore both power and communications. We want to help, and in particular, we want to help with the health side uh, because the statistics are 10 doctors are leaving per week from Puerto Rico to the U.S. mainland with plans of not coming back right away. More than 1,200 oh, drivers have lost uh, more than 60% of their health facilities are shut down. And those that are still open are running off of generated, you know, gasoline-generated um, generators for power, and that's, that's a prohibitively expensive cost. And so we want to think about what is a people-centered way that can empower the communities to decide how they're going to do communications and power, and in particular health and public health, because dengue, fever, and Zika are endemic to Puerto Rico. Um, in a way that we ideally try to avoid another another disaster coming this summer if we don't get things in place now. I, I saw the, the prophet Marcus Simonis went to Puerto Rico, so I got a, an inkling of what's going on there. It's just like you said, you know, still a lot of people without power. It's uh, a lot of areas that are dependent on, on tourism or ghost towns, so it's uh, still a big mess. It is, and, and and it's also where do you begin to start? And and you know we don't claim we're going to solve everything. We're we're just we're in some respects we try to be the connector of connectors, but you've got to start somewhere and say, look, something needs to be done, and at least begin to advocate. 
provide expertise and support, and ideally get the resources that are needed for the for the people that are impacted by this. Well, in terms of the internet, I'm sure everyone asks you, what about net neutrality? What is that? What people think it is, and what do you think the impact's going to be? Either appeal of it. So this is where I have to say. So in my 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 time in public service, I've intentionally been a nonpartisan, and I think. Net neutrality is one of those lightning rod topics that are clearly partisan. So I, I actually was at the Federal Communications Commission uh, serving as CIO in 2014 when Chairman Wheeler initially, if you remember, Chairman Wheeler initially did not come out with the position he eventually chose, uh, which was Title II as a way of doing net neutrality. Uh, 2017, uh, I was briefly there before I left for the People's Internet when Chairman Pai, of course, took the path he's taking now. I would say... And again, I say this as a nonpartisan, not wanting to 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 wade into political issues because uh, I have I have long learned that political issues vastly oversimplify things. Is that both sides? I think have oversimplified the issue, which is yes, clearly none of us want uh, a, a company to be disadvantaged because they're small and a large internet service provider says, you know, unless you pay for this package, we're going to slow down the amount of information being delivered to you or your services to others will be slowed down unless you pay for this package and and, and sort of monopolistic practices. Now, I think the other side would say that's a monopolistic practice and the way that you solve that is you use, you know, you, you basically challenge them as a monopoly. Now, the pro-net neutrality side would say, well, what if you're an individual or a small business and you don't have the resources to solve this through legal means? And I would say, you know, to that, I think, I think everyone's going to be watching in the next few years to make sure no monopolistic practices are done. And if there are, you can bet there's going to be a massive uproar. And so in some respects, that, that may take care of itself. But then to circle back on the other side, right. though, too, um, so Title II only applies to Internet service providers, and it doesn't apply to other large Internet companies that you might think of, uh, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. They're considered to be edge providers. And so you might say, well, is it fair that we're saying that ISPs have to do one thing, but these other companies don't? And so long and short, since you know, obviously this is more than a 30-second soundbite, I think both sides of the issues have oversimplified. And what, what, what I miss is I think at the end of the day, everyone wants open Internet. I can't imagine anyone in an open society in the United States saying we don't want open Internet. But what I think we've missed is, again, exploration of that space to say, maybe we just need to write a better title, maybe we need to do a better way. That conversation has been missed. And I guess this, at the end of the day, is is why I I gladly say I'm not a politician and I never intend to be one. Yeah, it makes sense. I just wanted to know, um, in your perception, there's a big misunderstanding in what neutrality, net neutrality actually is. That's why I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. I think... um, well, I mean, it, it does depend on and what level do you want things to be neutral. Are you talking about content, uh, delivery of content? Um, and so I think, and, and again, a lot of this is very U.S.-centric at the moment. Uh, other countries have different approaches. I think at the end of the day, that's where, again, we have to come to the thing that, that it is, 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 is what is the point of public service? Public service is to do those things that we can't do alone that collectively we feel like we need to do together. And so on the whole Internet debate, I think the challenge of this is it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Um, I mean, even if, let's say, for whatever reason, the United States was to go back to net neutrality um, or, or using Title II for net neutrality, let me, let me clarify that. Well, what happens if a company relocates their servers outside of the United States? 
is it where your packets originate from or your packets of information are sent that determines which law of the land is applied. And so we're living in an era in which I think a lot of our institutions are still based on laws and regulation by geography. And because of globalization, because of the internet, and because of exponential change, we're seeing these stress points and these, 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 these friction points that are in some respects hyper-polarizing the United States as well as Europe because the institutions themselves are meant to deal with geography in an era that is internet-based and globalized. Yeah, that's true. You're right. How does, uh, how does that work? When traffic slow down when it hits a certain country, yeah, it's very tough to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in some respects, with all respects to the lawyers, I'm not sure if I want the lawyers involved, to be honest. But that I'm not a lawyer and I have respect for lawyers. I just don't know if I want them involved in that. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess last couple of questions. You know, what's your hope in terms of your, you know, people's internet issues? Um, I mean, like you said, of all the issues you're working on, which one are you most passionate about? And what are your goals for it within the next year? So actually, the one that I'm most passionate about that we have not yet started, and uh, the way we operate, we're, we're very small right now. We're something like a scrappy startup meets a nonprofit meets a for-benefit organization. Um, what I'm most passionate about for a long time is the belief that you should have a locus of control and choice associated with your data. Um, you know, if you think about it, if the data you produced online were apples on the tree or on a tree that was being grown, you wouldn't expect that anyone should, could show up and take your apple and walk off of it if you spent all the time growing that. I feel like, unfortunately, I mean, yes, maybe there's those 30 or 40 page in-user in agreements that we all click through and don't really read all the way, or if we do read through all the way, it takes hours of our time. We're not aware of, one, the data we're, produce, we're producing online, the digital exhaust, and then two, for the most part, we're not aware of what's being done with it. Now, obscenity laws uh, came about when people started moving into cities and they would look out their window and they might see something that they don't want to see. And so obscenity laws were passed. And then about another 70 years later actually came privacy laws. So privacy laws came actually after obscenity laws, when in the 1970s in the United States, these things called advanced data processing, which were mainframe computers, could start to derive correlations and information about you that maybe you hadn't actually given permission or consent for the organization to know, um, whether it's about your health or your income or your family life or something like that. And so I think we're now at this new era where something new about that you have the right to choose what is done both to your physical person and to your digital self. And understanding that is critical. And so what I would love to see, and in fact, I've actually been talking to someone up in Sweden where they may actually be piloting this. So if it happens, it'll be great, is the ability for you to have a broker that you almost can interface with and the broker can say, you've received a request from company X, whether it's Google, Facebook, Amazon, to access your health information. Do you give permission, yes or no? And you might say no. And it comes back later and it's, again, it's a natural language system. So it's having a conversation with you. It says, um, would you be willing to share the data with them in return for the free app? You might say yes or no. Would you be willing to share it if I see your heart rate drops below 40 beats per minute? In that case, a lot of us would probably say yes if it's monitoring that and it detects that and it's the health information. But it's a conversation and the machine is beginning to learn from us our preferences in a way that's not yes or no on a 30 or 40 page end user agreement. And it's not going through massive checklists of privacy settings that get changed and we don't know when they get changed and things like that too. It's almost serving as our trusted broker on behalf of how we interact online, as well as our physical person. And I'm passionate about that because I think that's the only way we're going to survive 
and and have some semblance of integrity, integralness in the next decade and have people-centered approaches. Also, again, going back to my roots with bio, I would submit that everything we're seeing right now in cybersecurity and concerns about cybersecurity and cyber threats, we're going to see in about a decade in bio as well. I mean, you've seen CRISPR and there's other technologies coming out as well. At mm. what is your DNA private information? Because you don't want someone to know your DNA because if they sequence it, they could find out things about what you're not immune to or your health risk score or things like that. We're going to need that same sort of integralness, not just for the digital self, but for the physical self as well. And I think this is a model that scales well for both worlds. Yeah, there was a book by Mark Goodman, who worked, I guess, for the FBI, called Future Crimes, where he talked I'm about... I'm a good fan of Mark, actually. He and I collaborated back in 2007, yes. Oh, well, yeah, he pointed that out. And that book was like, uh, it was like a carousel of horror. You know, you read the first few chapters, and you're like, oh, no. And you read another mm-hmm. one, you're like, no. And it just gets worse and worse until you can't take it. Right on. All right, well, David, um, how can people uh, find you to collaborate, ask questions, you know, see more of what you're doing? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. Um, three ways. The On social media, on Twitter, I'm at chief underscore ventures at C-H-I-E-F underscore ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. Uh, you can also find uh, me at peoplecentered.net. And we do people centered both with the English, uh, the American English spelling of centered with E-R, as well as the British spelling of R-E. So either one will work, peoplecenter.net. And then lastly, on LinkedIn, I'm LinkedIn slash N slash D-B-R-A-Y. That's Delta Bravo R-A-Y. Very good, Dave. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, keep going on the good work. Oh, well, thank you, Richard. And, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. And uh, we need more positive change agents across sectors now more than ever. Thank you. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.